So if you think about pathologists as pattern recognizers, the first piece of pattern recognition data that we have is the imaging. Then comes the gross specimen, or even if it's stereotactic biopsy, if it looks friable or necrotic or hemorrhagic. Then comes the frozen section, all right? And, you know, if you use a diphquick and then maybe H&E, uh, that's, and this will be a smear, all right? And then the, uh, you know, the, the tissue architecture in the frozen section. And the next day, the FFPE, the formalin fixed paraffin embedded uh, tissue comes out, that sort of thing. But all of that, all of that histology gross, that is second to the pre-operative imaging. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. There's a lot of crossover between radiology and pathology these days. In fact, today's guest would refer to the two fields combined as diagnostic medicine. Dr. Greg Fuller is an oncologic neuropathologist, and today, We'll hear all about his concept of diagnostic medicine. We'll also learn about the eight data sphere model and how he uses it to make a diagnosis. I found his obvious excitement and passion for his work very inspiring, and I think you will too. All right, here's Dr. Greg Fuller. Right now, you're the section chief of neuropathology at MD Anderson. It's actually, the situation's changed just a bit. I very oh. recently this year handed over the section chief uh, to my wonderful colleague, Dr. Jason Hughes, uh, after serving uh, 24 years as section chief. Uh, but I am the deputy chair of the Department of Anatomical Pathology. And what I like to, t- what I like to say is, is that Dr. Hughes is chief of the section of neuropathology. Uh, but since I am still there, uh, I am the chief neuropathologist of the institution. That's, that's the way I like to put it. Okay. I see. I got it. All right. Well, let's let's go back to kind of the beginning of that path because I know you studied neuroanatomy and neurochemistry in college. So I want to kind of go to even even before that and like where where did this interest in the brain come from? Oh, it's um, it is I, I owe it I owe it exclusively to a string of mentors um, w- w- which ignited the fire. The, the earliest that I can remember, the start along the biology line per se was. Uh, a wonderful teacher, grade school teacher, seventh grade life sciences named Francis Thomas. We were studying, I guess it would have been elementary uh, cell biology at the time, mitochondria, RNA, DNA, the nucleus. And I became enthralled with it. And she supported and encouraged my interest. That was the beginning. Move on to, to high school freshman. This is a different sort of mentorship here. Uh, Jack Barkley was my freshman English teacher. And his mentor, he ignited in me the interest in the English language and vocabulary and started me along this path to develop a vocabulary that would allow me to express myself in precise ways that, that I needed. And he also encouraged me about critical thinking, so important. Arthur Harper was my ninth grade uh, uh, biology teacher, exactly the same thing. And Arthur Harper he was the first one who would design test questions that were truly test questions of thinking ability and not simply rote memorizations the first time I had encountered it. Uh, move on to uh, two mentors, John Locke and Harold Odom at San Jacinto College in Pasadena, Texas. Uh, I had been an English major uh, for a semester at the University of Houston. That was my other love. And I dropped out for a semester uh, to see if, you know, explore other opportunities, decided I was going to go back summer school, San Jacinto College, and get the science out of the way, then return U of H English. And because of John Locke and Harold Odom, ah, it rekindled that fire for biology. Ah, Then uh, I would say from Texas A&M University, Jack Dobson. Uh, the course that he taught me was comparative vertebrate morphology, which was a bear of a course back in the day for pre-med students. Now, I was not a pre-med student. I was a zoology major. But I, I thrived on the rigorousness uh, of that uh, of that experience. Richard Wiggins was my supervisor in graduate school at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, UT Health Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences here in Houston, the Texas Medical Center. And again, I cannot emphasize a critical thinking ability skills that Dr. Wiggins developed in me for the entire time that I worked in his laboratory. And from there, uh, off to, um, you know, off to, uh, to medical school and then off to Duke. And at Duke, my two key mentors in neuropathology would, were the, uh, the legendary F. Stephen Vogel, 
who was the teacher, mentor of Peter C. Berger. And Peter and I worked with both of those wonderful mentors. I was the, actually the last official fellow uh, performing Frozen Sections with Dr. Vogel and overlapped all the time with Dr. Berger. Dr. Berger gave me one key thing that has stayed with me for the subsequent 31 years since I left Duke and came to MD Anderson. And that is, he stressed in all of us, uh, the neuropathology fellows, the importance of imaging, the importance of imaging. So from day one, when I arrived at Duke, for internship, residency, and neuropathology fellowship, the, you know, the combined APNP program from day one, uh, I was looking at images. That's back in the CT, CT era, and I've kept that all along and developed it, developed it up, to, up, up, up to the present. So I would say it started in grade school, and again, I, I cannot give enough kudos to grade school te- teachers uh, who ignite the fire in their students the passion, and it is driven by passion that can last a lifetime. Thank you for asking that question, Dennis. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting kind of pathway because it's a little bit, well, I guess I should say, say say it this way. It's not really a straight line. You kind of had many twists and turns along oh, yes. that path. Oh, oh absolutely. I, I would say I, uh, for sure, I took the circuitous route. <laughs> no, no, no question about it. And what I would say about that is I enjoyed Every stage along the way. In graduate school, I could not have been happier uh, working in the laboratory, learning the courses, uh, you know, going to meetings for the first time, presentations, medical school, whole new challenge after after that, internship, residency, all of that. Again, every you know, my mother, my my blessed mother, uh, used to tell me. She said, "Every stage of life is the best," and the wisdom of that is it's really true. You simply have to appreciate each stage of your life and the wonderful things that are in your life at that time for that period, realizing that nothing truly lasts, these wonderful things, but new things will come in the next phase to replace them. And the key is to be aware of that. And so if you have special friends right now, if you have you know meetings you go to or conferences or anything like that that you enjoy where you're living right now, uh, outside of the work life, appreciate them now. Um, I think that that's one of the, I guess that's one of the keys to happiness. Yeah, that, I, I like that. That's an interesting uh, way to, to, to look at things. That's, that's some, some, some good advice from your mother there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that you mentioned uh, along your kind of educational path that I wanted to talk about a little bit. So that you met, you mentioned English and kind of wanting to have this sort of command of the English language and, and vocabulary, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit later with some things that you're doing now, but what was it that you wanted to do uh, in English? Well, that, see, this that, that was the thing is that from uh, uh, again o- owing that all to, to Jack Barkley, I loved uh, I loved the language, developing my writing skills and expression skills. Number one, and then there was literature because that's what you typically do. I suppose it's the same way now. In high school, is you know you explore novels and you know the principles, what's going on, analyzing and breaking down. And so that was my initial drive. And that is what led me to enter uh, you know, University of Houston as, a, as an English major. I think one time or another, you know, it was either biology or switched to English, English major. That was my focus. And I think, I, I, think I, I found out that it's a little bit different at the collegiate level. And that's where my focus shifted. And it shifted you know, via San Jacinto College back to my other love, biology. But here's the key, that passion for English, the English language and expression ability and the critical thinking skills, which translated from analysis of fiction literature into analyzing data and hypotheses was very natural, very natural to me. So I did not, I never lost that and have continued to develop Oh, my, my, my vocabulary. You know, I, uh, I, I wish that I spoke a second language. I really do. And I admire people who speak two languages like you would not believe it. What, what I say in my defense, Dennis, is that, uh, I fully intend to do that, to do that, the second language as soon as I've mastered English and I have not yet arrived. <laughs> so I'm still working on English. <laughs> okay. that, that, that's, that's the only I like defense that. I have. Okay, I think that that's that's a pretty good uh, pretty good defense. I like that. Now, you so you mentioned the vocabulary, the critical thinking skills, and these things seem to 
fit pretty well into being, you know, in medicine and especially in, into pathology. So those were good skills to pick up along the way. Oh, yes. Oh, oh absolutely. I, I think that, that that is that is so important. And I stress that um, I, I stress that all the time to our trainees, not only in pathology, but, you know, in my world, which is the brain world, the neuro world, in the neuro oncology fellows, uh, in the neuro radiology and general radiology uh, residents um, uh, and, and fellows that, that, that pass through uh, my way and, you know, radiation oncology uh, trainees, et cetera, the importance of, I will call it diagnostic medicine, because that is my area and specifically oncologic diagnostic medicine, and even more specifically, neuro-oncologic diagnostic medicine. That is my super subspecialty. That is my niche. And in that specialty of diagnostic medicine, making diagnoses, which at the beginning, that is key because everything else that follows from that, treatment, prognosis, all of it, uh, entry to clinical trials, it's all dependent on the precise in this molecular era, heading towards personalized medicine, precise diagnosis. And that is not a trivial thing. And in order to get it right, you have to be critical in your analysis of the histology. Absolutely. Histology is beautiful. It's wonderful. It is full of complex data and imaging H&Es that they will, it will never disappear. Now we're moving more and more towards digital, you know, whole slide imaging. Absolutely. But but the, the imaging, we have spent, oh, what is it, how many decades, a century, over a century, developing our knowledge base of histology, structure, function of cells, tissues, etc. There would be never a reason to ignore that. That will always be a huge piece of the puzzle. But we have to, and again, there are pitfalls, you know, even back in the days of when H&E uh, was the gold standard, there were pitfalls in diagnosis. Everyone's familiar with that. Well, there are equal parallel pitfalls in imaging, for example, which I you know, would say is the companion science to pathology. It's pathology and imaging. They are the same. They're one science that is diagnostic medicine. And they're the same pitfalls generally by categories in radiology as they are in pathology. It is remarkable the parallels between our two fields and they, no question that they, they are converging. Here's another thing. You know, I have this, uh, this, this conference th th that I give, uh, which I, which I call uh, the integrated diagnostic medicine case conference. And I stress the integration of all data spheres relevant to making a diagnosis. All right. And I will stress the initial diagnosis, but it's equally important at tumor recurrence and the mimics of recurrence, such as you know, infection and, you know, gossip aboma, textilomas, all of this, all of this es esoteric stuff. You have to analyze the data critically. And what I mean by that is be skeptical. You look at an H and E slide. Let's take the simplest explanation. And, you know, think, well, uh, you know, this, this looks like, you know, an adenocarcinoma, this, that, or the other. Well, maybe it is, and maybe it's not. There are mimickers, all right? And pathologists are intimately familiar with the mimickers. Well, there are mimickers in imaging, and there are molecular mimickers. In this brave new world of, of uh, genomic biology, there are many mimickers, overlaps and signals. Not every, uh, you know, B, uh, just, just take a BRAF, B600E mutation, the famous mutation. All right. In some tumors, it, it, it conveys a favorable or more favorable prognosis. In others, not so much. Same same thing for IDH, uh, um, isocitric dehydrogenase 1, 2 mutation. Uh, it, it's not only in my world brain pathology, also in hematopathology. And it means different things in different tumor types. Well, the diagnostic medicine uh, physician has to know that. So, so the point is, in my conference uh, with the different topics that I deal with, it's a case conference, but it's not it's not a case conference like let's look at the six types of primary lung tumors or the six type of small blue cell tumors in the liver, something like that. It's not that. It's more of challenge, challenge. And what I set up challenges, multiple small challenges, small challenges, big challenges. And the challenge, of course, level depends on the, on the level of, of your training. So what is challenging for an intern in radiology or pathology is completely different from what is challenging to a full professor of oncologic neuroradiology or oncologic neuro neuropathology. Uh, we, st we have our own challenges. So I set up these challenges and they're not fair. I mean, they're not unfair, 
but you have to you have to think critically to avoid falling into traps. And the traps that I set up, like I say, they are legitimate. It teaches, or I try to inculcate in all my trainees, in everyone who attends, and all of these uh, these different venues, the importance again of being skeptical, critical thinking, question your hypothesis. Whatever you think it is, question it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I love, I love to say, and it's absolutely the truth. And you stay in this, you you work in any field for uh, for th- for thirty years. So I've been thirty one at MD Anderson, and I was you know five at, at Duke before that. And if you want to add graduate school, and I was I was an assistant instructor at um, UT Medical School before that. It's basically forty years, forty plus years uh, in in this business. Here's one thing I can tell you: as creative and devious as I may be in setting up these tests, these challenges, I can never equal nature. I can never equal cancer and the traps and pitfalls that you will encounter as a young pathologist, young radiologist, as you get out in the real world, right, away from textbook lectures and the six entities and the diagnostic criteria and everything's black and white into the real world, a very imperfect, very challenging world. It's a jungle. It is a jungle, but it is a fascinating world. And with, if you are, if you are armed, armed appropriately, and this is mental armor, it can be an extremely satisfying profession, diagnostic medicine. And that's sort of, I know that's a kind of long word. You know, Dennis, you've probably heard this before. And I know it's true. Uh, what they say about pathologists is we tend to over-explain everything. <laughs> and I, I am yeah. definitely guilty of that. <laughs> no, that's all right. I, uh, yeah, you, you know, you, you sent me a couple of, of the videos of the uh, the Integrative Diagnostic Medicine Case Conference, or the IDMCC, as I, I think you refer to it. And yeah, the, the whole thing is you're asking questions and you're challenging the, the other uh, viewers and listeners to... It, it it is critical thinking exercises, and also you mentioned the vocabulary thing earlier when you were studying English. You you have kind of what is it word of the word of the week or something like that in those conferences too. Oh yeah, I, I, absolutely. There's a there's actually a range um, of the things that that I, that I do like that, and and, and for most of the time the you know the, the word of the week and sometimes it is, it's an expression of the of the week and this this is back when I did the conference weekly you know early on et cetera it's always drawn from the cases and conferences that I have attended since the last time that I presented the conference so it's not like I have to go to a book a book of words a book of interesting expressions or something like it's it's words or expressions that I have encountered in reports. Uh, from the outside, from inside, in radiology reports, et cetera, in the clinical record, in the course of reading papers, et cetera. And I love to present those. So some things are so elementary that still, if you have interns uh, and interns are in your audience, uh, one of the one of the pet peeves that, that many pathologists have is this the difference between septum, septa and septi or septa. Septum is singular, septa, S-E-P-T-A. Is plural. S E P T A E does not exist. <laughs> mm, okay. It's, it's not what in the world. I guess that's super, super multiple stuff. So, and, and the, the way you know, the, listen, the way you know that uh, a trainee doesn't know that is they will pronounce the plural septi or septa. And it's not, it's, it's septa. Yeah, right. And so, uh, I, I, one of the roles that I've had for about the past, I guess we're around on seven years now is we have a faculty committee that critiques, um, our oncologic pathology and subspecialty fellows in the unknown case conferences that they create and present with the help of a faculty mentor. But the faculty mentor doesn't do it. They do it. And we critique everything about their presentations, which would include their PowerPoints when they, you know, terrible choice of font versus background, tiny, illegible, you know, <laughs> serif fonts, all of that bit, A to Z. All right. From soup to nuts, we, we, we criticize it. And the, 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 the septi septi thing is, is comes up. Now that would be in English. That would be in English, maybe a vocabulary thing. Another example would be, for example, a chromosome uh, location of a particular gene with uh, classical cytogenetics would be, let's say it's a chromosome, uh, you know, (laughs) 2Q11.4. 
or okay i just kind of you see that what you will see if for those who don't have any knowledge they they would say 2p 11.4 and it's not 11 or 22 it's 22 because it's band you know it's chromosome uh, arm band subband right that, that's that's how it breaks down mm-hmm. but that's the side of genetics and you know 15 years ago 20 years ago Everyone would have known that because when, you know, chromosomal banding techniques were, you know, just being such a staining, it's a staining technique, wonderful staining technique. Everyone knew basic chromosomal banding technique. So, again, there's an example where you may have an internal resident, which is all over uh, genomic biology and et cetera, et cetera, but don't know the basics of chromosomal banding nomenclature. And so that would be sort of another another example uh, where, where that where that plays in. Let me give you a quick example of of a, of a phrase, and this is this is one okay. I only yeah, yeah I only used this recently, and it was Iacta alia est or alia est Iacta, and what it is is uh, you know, basically it's crossing the rubric, Rubicon and attributed uh, to Julius, future to be uh, Julius Caesar as he crossed this shallow river, the Rubicon, uh, Rubicon in violation of the Optimates and. You know, you had to put down your weapons. He didn't do that. Led to civil war. And he became he became Caesar. And how that phrase came up? Why I, it wasn't just let's look at a little bit of history. It's because I did that about two months ago. I did that. <laughs> I crossed the Rubicon, and I thought it was because that, that's exactly what it was. And just just to make a long story story short, I don't want to wade wade too deep into the weeds, as they say. But I incorporated a, an imaging sign into the molecular diagnostic part of my diagnosis. So my diagnosis, let's say for a new initial diagnosis of an entity which has critical molecular signature. Okay, so that means the, the, the molecular signature is part of the name. So there's going to be the name of the tumor, comma, with the molecular signature. And then immediately below that, this is all the diagnosis section, not the comment section, not the clinical correlation section, the diagnosis section. I always put in for these entities the one, two, or three uh, critical pieces of molecular information which support the diagnosis that I made. And the neuroradiologists and neuro-oncologists want to know that. They want to know how did you make this diagnosis and what is your level of confidence? Okay, for the first time, I incorporated an imaging signature, an imaging signature into that molecular data section. Now, okay, and, and what it is, it, it's the uh, T2 flare mismatch sign. And you have to have rigorous criteria for applying the T2 flare mismatch sign. But in the appropriate context, it has a positive predictive value for diffuse IDH mutant astrocytic disease that approaches 100%. If you keep the bar high, classical sign in adults, a cerebral hemisphere tumor, diffuse glioma, yada, 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 right? Uh, so this is, uh, this has been something that, um, uh, has been debated at the um, C-Impact meetings, you know, the, the pre-WHO you know, planning committees and all that, uh, for about the last three editions. And it was always felt that, that you know, imaging data is important. I think all of my colleagues give lip service to imaging data, but it always goes into the comment or into, you know, a, a, a clinical information or imaging data, you know, as you filter through down all of the stuff. And, of course, I have, you know, I, I put much more granularity into the comment uh, on, on all of this, but ah, you know, this is the first time. This is the only, to my knowledge, Dennis. Right now, this is the only imaging sign that merits, again, in the appropriate clinical context, to be included with molecular information because that is exactly what it is. So, in many ways, you know, just to move it up from a comment, a correlate, which is usually long after the fact. In fact, you can use it before. The point is here. I knew it before. I got the molecular data. I essentially already knew what the diagnosis was by looking at the preoperative imaging. Oh, take a step back and think about that for a moment. To already know what your frozen section diagnosis is going to be, you're going to know the molecular signature from the pre-imaging, from the pre-imaging data. And this is the only example that I know that, that has that high a positive predictive value when, again, you don't dip into the pediatric world, you don't dip into uh, septal, uh, et cetera, et cetera, DNET, all of that stuff, which can have T2 flare mismatch, but it's not diffuse IDH mutant astrocytic disease. That is incredibly powerful. And I think it is the best example right now of how our two fields, which in the past have been separate of surgical pathology, 
and diagnostic imaging are merging. And I believe, I believe that the historically, the first field to do that uh, is bone, bone pathology. Any bone pathologist will tell you that the imaging is critical because many of the different disease processes that affect bone have virtually indistinguish, indistinguishable H&E features, immunophenotype, etc. And the imaging tells you so much. It can separate them. So they were first at that level. And I think the, the other field, it's, it has to be oncologic neuropathology in, in terms of, of, of the, the, the emphasis we put on it. Now, every field, every subspecialty field, you know, will acknowledge the importance of imaging. And in some, it is more important than others. In many, it's, uh, it's an after-the-fact uh, clinical correlation. The big thing here is in oncologic neuropathology, the first piece of information that an oncologic neuropathologist or a general pathologist who's looking to brain tumor specimen, the first piece of diagnostic information that they need to have is the preoperative imaging data. And that you were pattern recognizers, right, Dennis? I mean, historically, yeah. we have been pattern recognizers. And that's why the mimics are so important, right? Because there's mimicry in nature <laughs> and there's mimicry in, in pathology, et cetera. And the, again, it's like the parallels between radiology and imaging is exactly the same. So if you think about pathologists as pattern recognizers, the first piece of pattern recognition data that we have is the imaging. Then comes the gross specimen, or even if it's stereotactic biopsy, if it looks friable or necrotic or hemorrhagic. Then comes the frozen section. All right, and, you know, if you use a DIFQUIC and then maybe H and E, uh, that's and just will be a smear. All right, and then the uh, you know the, the tissue architecture in the frozen section, and the next day the FFPE, the formalin fixed paraffin embedded uh, tissue comes out. That sort of thing. But all of that, all of that histology, gross, that is second to the preoperative imaging. So you, you can tell, Dennis, that um, I'm, I'm very passionate about, about this. I really am. And I think it's because it's, it's something that I have developed an appreciation for with 30 years and uh, what, what I would call the, the oncologic neuropathology trenches. It's trench, trench warfare. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's us against nature, against cancer, in order to arrive at the correct diagnosis. And we need to use all of the tools and not put, quote, all of our eggs in one basket. In other words, H&E is more important. No, or immunophenotype is more important. Or molecular signature is more important. They're all important. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Greg Fuller. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there's one thing that we all need. Comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just ordered a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, so I'm looking forward to trying those out. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Make sure you sign up for their loyalty program, where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. Now, here's the rest of my conversation with Dr. Greg Fuller on the People of Pathology podcast. Well, let's talk about that then, because, I mean, you, and you mentioned some of the, already some of the different types of data that you use, the imaging and the H&E, the molecular signatures, and you've got this kind of system that you developed. It's an eight data sphere model. Can, can we talk about that a little bit? Like, like, yeah. tell me how you developed this model and how you oh, yeah, use yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. This is all, it's all based on, uh, on the Venn, Venn diagram. And uh -huh. in my, my, my earlier talks, uh, you know, I always, I had, you know, uh, photos of, of Venn and, you know, at KS College, there's a stained glass window with the Venn diagram, you know, with this overlapping circles. And then this just comes from number theory. And everyone I know is familiar with, with basic Venn diagrams. Uh, you have different data spheres. Uh, different characteristics, and many of those, uh, are, most of those are different. Some are the same, and when you overlap them, uh, the region of overlap uh, is the common commonality between them. Well, you can expand that to uh, eight, eight spheres, which could be subsetted, but just you know, eight basic sphere data spheres. 
And here's the basic concept is that if you can populate each of these eight data spheres with high fidelity, means accuracy, accurate data, and high granularity, which means detail, and that's going to be hugely important with the molecular signature. If you can populate all eight, it should lead you in 99% of the cases to that overlap zone in the center, which appropriately turns out to be an octagon. All right. So there's another battle meta metaphor, if you will. That will be the diagnosis. I mean, the eight spheres, age, gender, those are the first two. Those are the first two pieces of data that you always know, 55-year-old mm -hmm. male, et cetera, et cetera. Each of the data spheres has its own differential diagnosis. Okay, if, if I were to tell you, for, for example, um, 55-year-old, okay, two, two data spheres, 55-year-old man with a contrast-enhancing brain mass, can you develop a, di a differential diagnosis just from those, those, those two spheres? And yes, absolutely. Now, the rules, the rules of the differential diagnosis is what is statistically most likely, based on the data you have, is at the top of the list. And then the statistically next most likely after that, and so on down the line to the zebras uh, at the at the bottom, and then actually penultimate, and then the albino zebras below that, and then the entities for which you are the first person in the whole world to ever see it, and you're going to write that case case report, which is the least likely. So what what is the differential diagnosis? What is the dip based on, on the, what I've, I've just explained the principles? What's a differential diagnosis? For enhancing brain tumor in 65 year old men. And the answer, uh, the, the answer would be metastat, metastatic tumor, specifically metastatic carcinoma would be most common, specifically probably a, a metastatic lung cancer, statistically most likely. Hmm? Okay. Now, if it's a 65 year old female, okay. well, lung cancer is still going to be up there, but you're actually going to, you're going to throw in breast cancer, et cetera, et cetera. And then the GI and renal melanoma. Absolutely. You know, they're all in there. I think GI kind of falls in, in fifth place, but that is the differential diagnosis. And then you go to the rarer tumors. So that's age and gender. All right. Just a, just a, just a point out the, the thing. Okay. Then, then we've come the in imaging features. Absolutely critical. Just in the order that you, uh, that you accrue your data, the history, uh, and the history, uh, does not have to mean the entire detailed history. It means the relevant, the relevant, the critical history. For example, did the patient have a two-week history of headache, nausea, vomiting, papilledema, and that led to a CT scan, and the CT scan led to the enhancing mass. And the very next thing that happens is the patient's going to get a CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis, and or a full-body fused CT PET to see if there's a primary tumor somewhere. And if not, then then, then uh, if it's not a primary, it could, it could be uh, metastasis from an unknown primary, but then you have to do a tissue biopsy, et cetera, to do that. So the, the imaging data, uh, then comes the tissue, all right? Classical histology, absolutely, for all the things we just talked about. Then will be typically differentiation marker, immunophenotype, GFAP, Desmond, SMA, all of this classical differentiation marker, uh, immunophenotyping, and then molecular signature, and molecular signature, all of these different platforms, beginning with the most, the simplest is 24 hour turnaround, 24 hour turnaround surrogate immunophenotyping for molecular signature. Example, IDH1 or 132H, uh, antibody, commercially available, exquisitely sensitive to mutant, the most common mutant R132H, all right, that substitution point mutation of the IDH1 gene. Right, which puts which puts in a diffuse glioma it in the category of either audience mutant astrocytoma or oligo oligodendroglioma, and of course the, the molecular data I, I have given a simple um, answer in this world of the new, especially now that the new um, World Health Organization classification of CNS tumors it's the fifth edition. Uh, also referred to as WHO twenty twenty one. It actually it actually was released. In December of 2021, uh, my personal feeling, they should have called it WHO 2022. They, you know, a typical publisher, you don't want it to be feel out of date the minute you release it. But, you know, oh, be, sure. be that as it be that as it may. Dennis, the what is the biggest difference between this new classification, international guideline, World Health Organization 2021 versus 2016, which was the prior? Well, it's really a six or seven year difference, the interval, because of 2016, that was based mostly on 2015 data, uh, et cetera. Six years is an eternity. So there were all of these uh, C-Impact Now uh, updates. There were seven of them, to be precise, published 
in the intervening years to try to keep up with the molecular signature changes and the terminology changes. And all of that came to fruition in Adepto 2021. So what's the end result? 22, 22 newly codified, formally codified tumor, brain tumor entities. Now there's about approximately 120, give or take, types of primary brain tumors, many of which are extremely rare. All right. But of, listen, of these 22 new brain tumor types, half, just over half, 12 of them are molecular signature defined entities, which means there is a traditional name of the entity followed with a comma, followed with the molecular signature. For example, astrocytoma, comma, IDH mutant, glioblastoma, IDH wild type. There are 12, 12 of those. Uh, which means you will always be able to make a diagnosis or an approximation of a diagnosis based on H&E. And that's so every country, other under, underserved populations, will be able to, if you have microscope, you have H&E capability to, un, to at least put the tumor in, in the category. And that's why histology worldwide is still incredibly important and will continue to be so. All right. So, so, so there's that. But if you make one of these 12 diagnoses, and you don't have a molecular signature, you, you give the, the name of the entity followed by a comma NOS, not otherwise specified, which is a red flag to the treating, the treating physician. All right. The primary care physician. Now notice I didn't say to the physician or the clinician because I am a physician. I didn't right. go to medical school to, to not be, you know, come on. But see, Dennis, I, I, I tell you, this is one thing I love about your podcast. The thing that okay. I love about the podcast is you are an advocate for our specialty in making these distinctions. I, I, as you know, you know, most most of the, the general population out there doesn't know who we are or what we do. Yep. And uh, sometimes I, there was one paper published uh, by uh, I will I will not say which one a famous uh, department of pathology. It was giving the history, and there were these historical photographs, and one of the photographs was labeled something like: "In this photo, we see we see eight physicians and four pathologists. So making a distinction wow. between a physician and a Oh yeah. I mean, come on. And, and frequently, and they say, well, we're, we are consultants and we're, we're the, we're the physicians, what physician or something like that. But look, no, Dennis, here is, here's the thing of it. In the past, that was absolutely the case because all of the clinical information, this is back in the day, we're talking 30, 40 years ago, really more like 40 years ago, the beginning of our field, beginning of our field in terms of surgical pathology, not autotoxic pathology, you know, with degenerative diseases, which is hugely important in a completely different world, uh, but and wonderful and, and great need there. But in surgical pathology, classically, the only clinical information that a pathologist had, say, at the, in the early days of intraoperative frozen section was what the surgeon chose to supply to them on a little sheet of paper coming out with the patient's name and MRN to the frozen section suite and in the history or diagnosis, whatever it would say, brain tumor. And you were lucky to get brain tumor, much less pineal region tumor. Mm -hmm. It's understand and and and, and listen, Dennis. I got this is a little bit of history, and this is something that your senior pathologist. Yeah, I guess I'm in the senior. Reluctantly, I'm putting myself in 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 the old guy uh, a position here. This is something okay. that those of us who have spent three decades plus in the business, we have the perspective of decades of evolution of our specialty, and there was a philosophy back in the day, still extant when I was an intern and a resident by some benighted surgeons who felt that it was not good to tell the pathologist anything about the patient history because it would bias the pathologist. And the feeling was, if we were told uh, that the patient had lung cancer, we would be overly influenced to just make a diagnosis of lung cancer, even if it was reactive to this, this, that, or the other thing. Now, I know you think that's, that is hard to imagine. It's hard to even grasp, but, it, but, it, but it's true. All right. And see, because mm -hmm. all, there was no electronic medical record, no EMR, all right, or EHR, whatever you prefer. Back right. then it was paper charts. It was the paper charts. And the pathologist, there were pathologists that did go to the bedside. The, uh, you know, the uh, hematopathologists frequently draw bone marrows, cytopathologists, FNAs, et cetera, et cetera. But typical surgical pathologists, other than that, 
uh, did not go to the bedside. And they didn't have all this basic information, much less the imaging, et cetera. And um, okay, okay, now let, let me relate to another thing uh, besides the paper chart because it ties into it. Also, imaging. Imaging is the other thing. Another, another huge thing is yeah. back in the day, particularly CT era, the imaging studies were not digitized. They weren't digitized. They were plain films. And I'm sure everyone has seen them. You know about them. And in, and in many countries, I'm sure they're still out there. They're still used. And there would be light boards, light boards in the operating room uh, where, where all of the images, the MR images would be hung up in a row so that the neurosurgeons could refer to them while they are operating. Hmm? And so that is one of the reasons why I was trained by Peter C. Berger to always go to the operating room. So we suited up in scrubs, go into the operating room for every single frozen section. And I did that for five years at Duke. And I did it for about 15 years uh, after I came to MD Anderson and ultimately started <laughs> calling in. But the, there was a reason why I was able to do that. To, to like, and, and it's not that I didn't want to go in. There's still a lot of things that... Uh, they go on in the OR that are wonderful. You can, uh, the neurosurgeon can show you things like, hey, step up here, have a look through the loops, you know, the magnifying lenses, and you can see living neuroanatomy. It's, it's, it's amazing. But look, here's the point. Today, that is not the case. We have the electronic medical record. Now, what that does, what the EMR does is open up to the pathologist all of the clinical record. Every clinic note, every, uh, his, uh, every history physical, every imaging study, every in imaging report, all of it is at our fingertips. Now, pathologists, I think it's a, a, a French phrase, uh, you know, of a certain age, shall we say, pathologists of a certain age do not want that. And they will say things like, I am not a radiologist. And so uh, all I need is for to read a radiology report or the radiologist will tell me or the surgeon, you know, will tell me, well, you know what, guess what? Guess what? Neurosurgeons are not board-certified neuroradiologists. Radiation oncologists are not board-certified neuroradiologists. Neuro-oncologists are not. But they all know basic neuroimaging, all of them. And so if you, uh, as an oncologic neuropathologist or as a general surgical pathologist who will be performing frozen sections on brain tumor patients and issuing final diagnoses, and you don't have remote where you can farm it out to an oncologic neuropathologist here or there, then you're going to, there's a, that's a lot of pressure on you. And why would you not want to learn the basics of neuroradiology, neuroimaging? And I include that every fellow at MD Anderson who rotates uh, on the neuropathology service learns the basics of T1, T2, uh, T2 with contrast, T2 flare, fluid attenuation, inversion recovery. Those those are the four H&Es, if you will, of basic neuroimaging, right? T1, T2, and the various flavors. And there's more to it than yeah. that. But that's where you start. And everyone can learn that. And here's Dennis. Here's the point. Let me let me cut to the chase right now. Okay. Let me cut to the chase. It's okay if you don't want to take on that mantle, that, that, that role. I understand it. But you're going to be handicapping yourself in many areas and increasingly more as we move forward if you don't assume that role. And Dennis, the third piece of the puzzle is genomic medicine, the molecular signature, the molecular data, right? right? Fortunately, fortunately, that ended up in our world, the pathology world. And there was a battle a decade, two, two decades, three decades ago about who would manage that internal medicine, pathology, et cetera. We won that battle. These are the CLIA lab certified. So guess what? Guess what? The pathologist is the first member of the patient's clinical team to have all of the information. And the last piece of the puzzle will be the molecular signature, the next generation sequencing data, the DNA methylation profile. We are the first member to have all of the data, all eight Venn diagram spheres populated to make the precise diagnosis. What does that mean? It means that at tumor boards, at tumor boards where the discussion is a brand new patient initially, initially presenting, we should be able to understand everything that's said about the imaging, the backgrounds, all of that. Plus, we will know what needs to be done when, when there's a needle biopsy, et cetera. And we will have the, uh, the data when it comes out. Here's the bottom line. Bottom line, pathologists truly in the year, I'm going to call it 2023. We're a month away. In the year 2023, we should be leading the tumor boards in terms of the knowledge, et cetera, for these situations not as consultants sitting in the background and 
someone would say, uh, Dr. So-and-so, uh, would you would you like to show, show the image of this patient we operated on, you know, two weeks ago? And that, you know, after the VAT. OK, how do you like that, Dennis? That's my uh, that's my philosophy. I love that. You know, you've been talking a lot about incorporating imaging into the pathology diagnosis and kind of the similarities between radiology and pathology. Do you think there's, you know, a scenario like in the future where those two fields would would merge? Yes, absolutely. I think there's there's no question about it, but because they're, they're in, functionally they are merging. I, I think we really have. We really have done that with our core group of oncologic neuropathologists right now, myself, Dr. Houston, Dr. Ballister. We functionally really are one because of the closeness of the interactions at Frozen Section and the tumor boards and other conferences during the week. Um, there's there's certainly one prototype, uh, at least one. Um, there are probably more, but the one I know of is uh, the Dell Dell Medical School in Austin. That's Michael Dell, Dell Computers. All right. I do not own Dell Computers and they don't pay me any money. I'm just stating the facts. So Dell Medical School, uh, I believe this is still the case, does not have a department of pathology and they don't have a department of radiology. They have a department of diagnostic medicine. And well, that department is chaired by, well, it's a radiologist. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> okay. But there's no, I'm, saying, I'm, I'm being facetious. There's no reason why it couldn't be a thought, but they have, they have done it. So they've done it. This medical school, they have combined them. All right. And I think that I, I'm not sure how quickly that model is going to catch on. You know, it, it's very slow to change. Maybe a decade, something like that. I think there will be more and it probably will be gradations, particularly in the, the, the tertiary care. Uh, 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 centers, uh, but I think we are heading more and more and more uh, in, in that uh, in that vein. Dennis, let me mention. Oh my gosh, I have to, I have to mention in this regard that uh, I am um, I am a full professor of pathology. I am also a full professor of neuroradiology at MD Anderson. Neuroradiology is a full department. It was chaired uh, previously. The first chair of the new department was Donald Schomer. A uh, wonderful oncologic neuroradiologist. Our new chair is Dr. Max Wintermark. Both of them have been very supportive of me and my efforts. Under Don Schomer, I was initially awarded this uh, professorship in the Department of Neuroradiology, and I consider myself an equal member of, of both of those disciplines. Now, if you look at joint appointments of oncologic neuropathologists or, or any other field of, of, of neuropathology, Across the nation, across the world, most joint appointments would be with the Department of Neuro Neurology, with neurosurgery, with molecular biology or cell biology or genomic medicine. Joint appointments with a department of neuroradiology, I think, are very rare. I would say that this is one of the, the, the my... One of the things that I would call the not the greatest achievement, but the most satisfying thing for me at this stage of my career is to be a professor of both pathology and neuroradiology. I, um, uh, that is incredibly satisfying to me that I believe in many ways I have taken the charge that was given to me by Peter C. Berger, my mentor during his Duke era years of learning and putting the imaging first and carrying it as far as I can take it. And now it's time to, uh, it's time to, to, I, I think, um, pass on the, pass on the baton. And so that's what I teach <laughs> in my uh -huh. IDNCCs and, and, uh, and other conferences. Yeah. Now you, so you mentioned the, the influence of mentors on your career and, and doing the IDMCC. I feel like that's, that's you mentoring, you know, your, your residents and fellows in kind of the same way. Is that, is that part of the purpose of that? Oh, it's abs it is absolutely the purpose. It, yeah. it, it is purely, it is a teaching conference and it is, I, I'm, I'm so ha I'm happy to say it is equally attended almost in equal numbers by uh, uh, pathology trainees, uh, from, uh, uh, even a couple medical students, you know, pathology by neuro oncologists, by neuro oncology fellows, by neurosurgery fellows, including research neurosurgery fellows who will be going in academic medicine and, and by at least usually two 
full professor neuroradiologist. Not 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 uh, not at MD Anderson Cancer Center, but here in the Texas uh, um, Medical Center. And uh, that is just and so I have all of this expertise. Uh, but plus plus one uh, one. Uh, a uh, wonderful oncologic neuroradiologist um, that, that always, always tunes in. And I call on them frequently to contribute their expertise, which is just wonderful. And that's the reason why I always have to design challenges. I, I always include some easy ones, right? So everyone's a winner. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I have to include some that will challenge even, even these full professor neuroradiologists who are really good. And the two that attend... They live and breathe oncologic neuroradiology, even though they, they know the rest. But that is, you know, that, that that's their passion and their love. And I am able to do that only because I see the big picture. And um, and well, that's it in a nutshell. Uh, I, I've heard you say this in a, in a few different places, including in that conference. You say that finding the correct diagnosis in clinical neurology can sometimes be compared to working method of Sherlock Holmes. And I'm, I'm yes. curious how you came up with this. Well, it, it's just I, I think I, I, li- I like the metaphor only because, only because Sherlock Holmes I think is is recognized pretty much worldwide. All right, as a, mm-hmm. you know, as a detective and, and for analytic ability. And I think there was a quote uh, maybe in one of the stories is that he said I pay you know I pay attention to trifles for tiny details, and that's what he is. He was an observer in the stories that Sarah Conan Doyle wrote. He was he was an observer of minutia of details. And I emphasize that all the time. Typically, what will happen in, uh, you know, for, for a pathology intern, they'll look at an H&E slide, put it in the microscope, they'll make a snap diagnosis. Oh, it's a metastatic carcinoma or it's meningioma or schwannoma. They'll make a snap, snap diagnosis and then shut down. The brain just shuts off and they don't see anything else. And it's such a mistake. The tissue has so much to teach us. You know, you have to look. And sometimes it's a tiny thing. Maybe it's not. The six slides that have a big chunk of tissue, maybe it's the slide that only has a few tiny bits. But guess what? They, they show you, oh, it's the phylum terminale. Ah, I didn't know that. It wasn't hit, et cetera, et cetera. And it starts and it's a critical piece of information. It's in the details. So that's one of the things that, that I love uh, about Sherlock Holmes. Now, I have to say, I want to say right off the bat. That, uh, that the stories, uh, the stories are certainly that uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote are certainly open to criticism. And I'm familiar with a lot of those criticisms, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, uh, I have the full volume, you know, everything every, uh, ever published. And I've worked my, through it, my way through it. And I make notes. I'm one of these people who likes to make notes and books. I don't want to keep my books pristine so they look like they've never been read. <laughs> uh, I make notes all over the place. And I can tell you about half the notes that I make are critical. Uh, of this, that, and, and, and the other thing are critical. And the other half, half are laudatory. However, I think taking it at face value, the method, the attention to detail, and the, what I would, it would call it convergence of data, convergence of data from different areas, all of these different clues, putting them together is what is emphasized in the best of the stories of, uh, of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And that's why, uh, that, that's why I like to use that, that metaphor for what we do in diagnostic medicine. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's a recognizable character for pretty much everybody. And yeah, the, the method that he used is, is very similar to the, um, the, the data model that we were talking about earlier. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. I like that a lot. All right. So here's kind of a little bit of a, uh, I guess more silly question. Do you have a favorite, uh, Sherlock Holmes story? Oh, well, I would say um, th- th- there are multiple that would come to mind that um, were either that stand out either because of um, the construction of the story was brilliant or the deep, the uh, observation of minute details was so I- insightful, which is thrilling to a diagnostic medicine physician. But I think for if you like to think out of the box, you know, beyond the envelope, actually, I think I might put one of the my favorite stories is one of the shortest and one that is generally completely ignored, um, including in major series like I love Jeremy Brett, uh, the four, the late Jeremy Brett and the series uh, Granada series uh, of episodes that, that he filmed. And for anyone who's maybe a Sherlock Holmes fan or oh, yeah. interested, uh, 
yeah, Jeremy Brett, I would say, but, and, and it was not in the series. That was the point of this. And it would be, uh, the adventure of the yellow face. And I think that is not, uh, a name of one of the adventures that even people who say they like Sherlock Holmes and read a lot, et cetera. And the reason is the gist and, and the story is not perfect. Again, I feel like I have to say that and has been criticized at multiple levels and, you know, this sort of thing. But the gist of the story is uh, to, to briefly summarize, there was um, an American lady uh, who came to Britain and met an English gentleman. Uh, they fell in love. She had told him that her husband and her child had died uh, in, in America and of yellow fever, and she had left uh, to, uh, to 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 come to England. And they were happily married for some some years, and then all of a sudden they had there was a cottage that they had, and the cottage was occupied. And uh, you know the wife had asked the husband, "Can I have some money? Borrow some money to yada yada yada?" And she was sort of keep, keep me a secret. To make a long story short, what happened was the, the, the husband thought it was it was the husband returned and was a blackmailing her. That's what he thought, you know. And so anyway, he ends up going there. Uh, you know, they go into the house with the objections of the Scottish uh, housekeeper, and it turns out there, there was a yellow face in the window. This you know this ugly yellow face, <laughs> and what it turns out it was it was a mask, and uh, it was their child. They had a child that uh, was nearly dying, die of yellow fever. Uh, her husband did die of yellow fever and she was unable. She left money for the child to come to England when the child was well enough. And it took that long and her caretaker brought her over. And the reason for the yellow mask is the child uh, was of mixed racial heritage because her husband was a black lawyer and she was afraid that she and her, ch- and her child would be rejected by her husband. You have to keep in mind, I mean, this is England, 1800s, et cetera. And mm-hmm. it turns out the husband, uh, the, 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 the bottom line, the point part of the study is this husband, when he sees, sees what it is, he picks the child up, kisses the child, extends his uh, hand to his wife, her name was Effie. And he says, Effie, I am not a very good man, which is true in many ways. The fact that he didn't fully trust her, et cetera. Effie, I am not a very good man, but I think I am a better one uh, than you think I am. And they go off. And I think that's just a wonderful story. And it speaks to, to many things. It speaks to um, to racial tolerance. Uh, it speaks to compassion. It speaks to making mistakes, being forgiven, to redemption, rising above. And I love it for all of those reasons. Uh, the Holmes aficionados will say that it, it's one of the few examples where Holmes deductions of what was going on. He was pursuing the, the, the hypothesis that a husband had returned and was the blackmail hypothesis, all of that, uh, where, where he, he was, he was wrong, uh, which, which makes it, you know, a, a interesting in the canon, uh, of Sherlock Holmes. So that, that's a little bit of an unusual reason to like a Sherlock Holmes, uh, uh story, but I, I'd say I would put that for those reasons at the top of my list. Okay. That's interesting. You know, I was going to say that. I don't think I had read that one, but when you mentioned the face in the window, that does sound familiar to me. So maybe, maybe I have at some point when I was, when I was younger, but I'll, I'll, I'll definitely. In, yeah. It's, it's, it's entirely possible. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'll have to pick that one up again and take a look at it. But yeah, I mean, all, all, all of those, those lessons that you just mentioned, mentioned, those are great. And just examples of the attention to detail, which is of course a large part of what Sherlock Holmes was all about. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, I, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, um, you know, I, I enjoy watching all of the stories, all of the, uh, all of the portrayal portrayals, uh, you know, in the movies going, going all, all the way back. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, I guess might be the most popular today. <laughs> sure. He's, he's a pretty big star and I have, I have really enjoyed watching his portrayals, uh, of Holmes and, and I love the, the, the Watson, uh, and the series. And I think he did a magnificent job in his delivery. And I think that he, if he had decided to devote, you know, his career to making all of the, the uh, all of the, uh, series, all, all of the stories as Jeremy Brett did, I think he could have equaled, uh, Jeremy Brett. Uh, but Jeremy Brett, I think is still incomparable. Uh, my, my reading on the, uh, the, 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 um, adventure of the yellow face, is that it has, uh, from the knowledge I got, you know, a lot of what, of what you read on the net's wrong, but 
It had only been made into a movie, a silent film in like the 1920s. Uh, so it, it, it was not, yeah, et cetera. So, it, and it's not a story um, that's very popular, put it that way. Mm-hmm. So I guess in that sense, for, for anyone who's interested just in Sherlock Holmes per se, maybe this, this, is, this has been enlightening. And there were also differences if you get, if you want to get granular about it in, in the, you know, the, the British versions, uh, the British versions of the stories and the American uh, published stories back in the late 1800s. A lot, some verbiage was changed, uh, you know, et, et cetera, et cetera. So that's also fascinating to, to look into. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. The, the last thing I wanted to ask you, and you might have touched on this already, I, I, I kind of wanted to, to get like, okay, what was like, one of the highlights of your career. Now you mentioned the the joint appointment that you have in two different departments. Would you say that is a that was the highlight, or would it be something else? No, I I would say that that is definitely a highlight. Oh, the the, the highlight of my career. I mean, you know, all, all of us who have been in academic medicine for thirty years could say, oh, I got this award, I got that award, I was president of this society, that society, the, the things like that. For me. The, the highlight of my career has been um, the privilege and opportunity to help influence the minds of all of the young people coming up. For 30 years, um, I have participated with Dr. Clay Goodman, who founded the Houston Area Neuropathology Review about four years before I came back to Houston from Duke, arriving in 1992. And for 30 years, we did it together and attended by upwards of 200 trainees in the Texas Medical Center from all of the institutions, from all of the disciplines, and then all of the trainees who have come through MD Anderson, um, all over, and all of my friends in general surgical pathology and neuropathologists uh, all over the, the world, um, my opportunity to help them and help ensure the future of, of our of our specialty, that would, that would be my number two uh, accomplishment. And Dennis, I think you're doing so much with this series to, to enlighten everyone. I would have to put number one on uh, my greatest achievement. I, I just, not an achievement, just any help, help, the help that I have been able to give to our patients as a primary care physician in rendering an accurate diagnosis for them. That tops everything because in my world that's what it's all about yeah i love that that's that's a great message for anybody listening uh whether you're a medical student pathology resident and attending uh you know and and of of any i think any area of the the pathology department or lab lab department in general that's a great message i love that it is all about the patient oh dennis can i just add one more quick thought i mean just a comment of course I, i would be remiss I would be remiss if I didn't say, uh, because I know you are a pathology assistant, I would be remiss if I didn't praise the pathology assistant group at MD Anderson Cancer Center. We could not have the level of excellence that we have at MD Anderson without them. They are absolutely critical. Uh, for years, the neuro, we, we as neuropathologists, we grossed our own specimens within the last four years or five years with this group of pathology assistants, you know, that we have, they are just wonderful, magnificent, and we couldn't do it. And I'll say the same thing about our histopathology technician group and the lab managers, et cetera. They are absolutely central. Dennis, you know, I, I, I've emphasized in this, in this talk about pathology being equal to surgery, neuro-oncology, radio-oncology, yeah. but that that is a lateral. That's a lateral equalness. I also want to emphasize a more spherical uh, equality. I, uh, I one of I guess one of the great honors I received was an award. Uh, I, I named award from uh, about a neuropath, neuropathologist at the University of Pittsburgh. And what I was told about him, and I had the pleasure of meeting, was that he treated everyone the same. Everyone the same from the president of the university, down to the housekeeping staff, everyone he treated the same. And I would hope that that the same would be said of me. I love that. That, that, that I I keep saying that's a, that's a great message, but that one, that one is really good. It's important for everybody to to learn that one. And and this is, 
yeah, this conversation has been full of these like great lessons. I, I love it. Uh, Dr. Foley, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate your time. I appreciate, uh, you know, l- learning more about you and just your, your way of thinking about diagnostic med- medicine. It's super interesting. Uh, Dr. Greg Fuller, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Dennis. And thank you much, so much for creating and running this, this podcast. It was an honor to speak to you. If you're looking for another episode of the People of Pathology podcast to check out after this one, here's a trailer from my interview with Dr. Carrie August as we talk about her career and her work with the CAP Foundation. Here's a quick listen. If you're a pathologist and you, you know you hear about the C-Test and Treat program and you think, this is something that I should do at my hospital or my facility, how, would, how does one go about doing that? I would, this would be another link for you. They would go to foundation.cap.org and there, there's information about everything the foundation does, ways to get involved. Not only can you uh, be the captain of a C-Test and treat at your hospital or help with the C-Test and treat at your hospital, we have, um, as I said, you can apply for different grants And we have a lot of committees uh, which are manned by not only our CAP Foundation board members, but by other CAP members. And we really need the help. And it's a great way to get involved. You can hear the rest of my conversation with Dr. Carrie August in episode 82. Okay, great big thanks to Dr. Greg Fuller. Did you catch that passion and that excitement? I mean, I was sitting there the whole time thinking, I can't believe I get to have this conversation. It just it just was so inspiring. He's just such an incredible person, and he's the kind of person that I think everybody needs as a mentor, at least at some point throughout their career. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at People of Path, or just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. Together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. You can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network. And while you're there, check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Dennis Drank, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.